Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 10. So when Moses encountered Yahweh, encountered this unknown God, and he said, what's your name? My name's Moses, what's yours? He said, Eye, Asher, Eye. And then everybody had to figure out what to mean by that. It means something like, I am who am. I am what am. What is I is. Uh, what comes to be, I cause to be. has all those kind of implications. Without question, its central meaning is, I am indeterminable. You cannot determine who I am. You cannot define. Define means to bring to an end. You cannot define. You cannot foreknow. There is no foreknowledge. And what? And to the extent that one foreknows, to the extent that one has foreknowledge, we have had to leave Yahweh out of it. Simply will not be part of a foreknowledge system. So if I try to determine the future, I have to determine a future that is godless in terms of the Judeo-Christian God. Because the Judeo-Christian God will simply not be determined. So whatever it is I determine about the future is going to be a godless one. Because I have let, because my determination is is antithetical to that being that Moses met in the burning bush. There's a great scene in Moby Dick where Ahab is down, spread all his charts out on his table, trying to find the white way, and he uses all the human ingenuity and all of the navigate nautical navigational techniques for locating that white whale. If we are going to be the occasion for the... If we're going to be the play, the meeting place between time, where time and timelessness meet, we have to figure out what's the appropriate... Uh, how do we prepare ourselves for it? Don't, uh, Elliot says... First of all, you recognize that shaft of sunlight, that winter lightning. You recognize what that can do to you to remind you. And then prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. That's Emily Dickinson gives us another hint. She says, wonder is not precisely knowing and not precisely knowing not. Uh, I, when I, I remember reading that and thinking, is it or is it not a wonderful universe? If that's what wonder is, then one wants to live in a wonderful cosmos, which requires that one not exactly know and not exactly not know. Now, Elliot talks about hints and guesses. The hints and guesses have to do with some sense that there is for each of us 
if it is an incarnating universe, and if each of us is the occasion for the breaking in of timelessness into time, then we have rendezvous, we have appointments to keep. We don't know when and where they are, but we have appointments to keep. And if we have, if I know nothing, if I have no hint of my destiny, then my life is faded. But if I know the future in great detail, my life is just as faded. Both of those, if I know nothing, if I have no sense that, that there is something in my future which is, which is destined, I will live a faded existence. If I know in great detail what the future will be, I will live a faded existence. Wonder is not precisely knowing and not precisely knowing not. Amphiaraeus was one of the seven against Thebes, and uh, he, well, let's just go to the text. Virgil says to Dante, lift, lift your head and see the one for whom the earth was opened while the Thebans watched, so that they all cried, Amphiaraeus, where are you rushing? Have you quit the fight? Now, this is very interesting. Amphiaraeus consulted, you can say, consulted the oracles because he had a, a, a vague sense of destiny and he wanted to make it less vague. And he thought to himself, if my vague sense of destiny could be less, made less vague, I would have a better sense of destiny. That makes sense, doesn't it? If my vague sense of destiny could be less vague, I would have a better sense of destiny. Well, it was made supremely less vague, and he had a sense of fate. He thought it would turn him into a hero who had a destiny. It turned him into a coward who had nothing but a fate. Because the only God that you can meet in a predictable universe is a false one. And so it turned him into a coward, and he hid from battle, and the earth had to swallow him up. The prediction was he was going to die in battle. He was going to die during the battle. And he, his hope was that if his vague sense of destiny to be less vague, he would have a bigger sense of destiny, and he didn't. And so Eliot in Dry Salvage says, I sometimes wonder if that is what Krishna meant, which I think in his uncanny way is Eliot's commentary on Amphiaraya. Krishna, as you know, talked to Arjuna, the warrior Arjuna. And he says, you see that battle down there, Arjuna? That's it, my boy. And let me tell you about it. And Arjuna then had to be instructed, no, you must still go. You must still go. And so Eliot says, I sometimes wonder if that is what Krishna meant. And Amphiaraeus got the details on his vague sense of destiny, became a coward, and his life became faded. Now, the eleventh hour 
is when it, the breakthrough can happen. And the eleventh hour is not on is is the, the time of both beginning and ending. Eliot, in so many ways, over and over in his poem, says some version of "In my beginning is my end," and so on. In the in the end is my beginning, and I know the place for the first time, and all of that. I mean, it's a great echo in Eliot's poetry. And in Dry Salvages, Eliot turns to one of the great uh, mythological motifs in the Christian order, which is the Annunciation. So I think it'd be interesting for us to juxtapose Amphiaraeus, not with Arjuna, but with Mary in the Annunciation story. When the angel comes to Mary, He tells her that she's destined, and uh, she doesn't say, "Well, would you go into that a little more detail?" She says, "Be it done unto me according to thy will." And that's that wonder, I think, Dickens inside of that, not precisely knowing, not precisely knowing, not but allowing it to come to be. So what Eliot does in his poem is that he, he enumerates three kinds, three, three opportunities for the Annunciation. He is saying the if this is an incarnating cosmos, we must try to become available for for those rare moments when the timeless breaks into us. If we cannot be saints and be occupied with that project entirely, we can be at least be aware of it so that it can come in, and then we can attend to it when it has come in. I think most of the time, you know, speaking of the future, a lot of times we think the great peak experiences, the religious experience of my life is still going to happen. I think it's just as possible that we can say they've already happened. And I didn't attend to them. They were distraction fits, and I did not apply to them the prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action they deserved, and so they went by the by, like a neutrino, right straight through the earth and didn't hear a thing. So anyway, Eliot says, the mythological motif that will inform us about how to be, how to be available for the incarnation, is the Annunciation. Obviously, quite obviously. That's how. And in his poem, Eliot lists three primary opportunities. One is, at a moment of danger or terror or catastrophe. Eliot wrote the poem during World War II. And he calls it, quote, the unprayable prayer at the calamitous annunciation. That moment of danger, of catastrophe, 
or terror is the calamity of renunciation if we could simply be present to it. And the second one is at the moment of death, or as one approaches death. And Elliot writes this, there is the final addition, the failing pride or resentment at failing power, the unattached devotion which might pass for devotionless in a drifting boat with a slow leakage, the silent listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell of the last annunciation. I hope I die with those words on my lips. I want to tell you, I think that in a drifting boat with a slow leakage, the silent listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell of the last annunciation. And the third one is the incarnation itself, the, the incarnation of Christ, what Eliot calls in his poem, quote, the hardly, barely playable prayer at the one annunciation. And this enunciation he capitalizes, capital A. So for those of us in the middle realm, he there, there the, the you know the, the features of the press, the usual pastimes and drugs and features of the press and all that. Addict, future addicts, you know. And then there's then there are the saints who are really attending to that intersection of time and time. And then there's the rest of us. And we have the distraction fit accompanied, if all goes well, with prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. And then what he's saying is, if now, if you want, now that you've got that scheme, he says, now if you want to look, you want to locate where the best opportunities are for this enunciation, this breakthrough to happen, he helps us out in catastrophe, the moment of death, and depending on how you look at it, I think at the Eucharist. Um, depends on how you want to define what he means here by the incarnation. But the attitude appropriate to that breakthrough is the annunciation. In the annunciation story, Mary both knows and does not know. She is told that the past and future are gathered that what is happening in the womb of her existence is the fulfillment of the past and the redemption of the future. And she says, yes to it. There's an Episcopalian scholar named John Booty who wrote about enunciation and uses a phrase I want to share with you because I think it's just what we're talking about. He says, the Annunciation is marked by the intense consciousness of the unanalyzable whole, now perceived to be the God who sends the Incarnate One to our rescue. The phrase that I want to underscore is the intense consciousness of the unanalyzable whole. That is, I think, wonder, not precisely knowing it is unanalyzable, and not precisely knowing not, it is intensely conscious. 
the intense consciousness of the unanalyzable whole. And if I want to analyze it, what will come of it? If I want to analyze it on in more detail, what comes of it is something less than itself. Why did I go into all that? Um, well, there's a tremendous change of mood between Canto 20 and Canto 21. At the end of Canto uh, 20, Virgil refers to his poem as, an, as a tragedy, and at the beginning of Canto 21, Dante refers to his poem as a comedy. And uh, this may have been a strategic uh, insertion by Dante at this point because of the mood change. Comedy, of course, doesn't mean something that's ha-ha. It means something that ends happily. Uh, But he may have used that term to set us up for what's going to happen in 20, Canto 21-22. These have been called by the scholars the gargoyle cantos on the assumption, on the cathedral uh, metaphor, that uh, the, the poem's uh, encyclopedic claims would require that somewhere in it there would be gargoyles, uh, if it's going to be on the metaphor of a cathedral. And so these two cantos in the Inferno, 21 22, uh, are thought to be those gargoyle cantos. I think of it more as a kind of uh, poetic uh, Mardi Gras right before the heavier Lenten fair that will follow afterwards. Uh, in, you can tell I'm already doing my Melville work. In Moby Dick, there's a, there's a chapter entitled Hyena. <coughs> which happens after uh, Ishmael's first exposure to the whale. Uh, and in it, uh, he says, among others, he describes the situation. He says, that odd sort of wayward mood I'm speaking of comes over a man only in some time of extreme tribulation. It comes in the very midst of his earnestness, so that what just before might have seemed to, seemed to him a thing most momentous now seems but a part of the general joke. Well, uh, that may be something of, uh, Melville was reading uh, the Inferno when he was writing Moby Dick, so maybe something of that. The, the sinners that are being punished here are the barriters or the grafters, people who have lined their own pockets uh, because of their official position in the, in the secular order or, or the public order. We may not get as worked up as Dante seems to be about these sinners. He was worked up about them, but he's also having a lot of fun. So he's not deeply moved by their moral offense. But we probably, in order to be as worked up as he is about them, we might have to live uh, under the regime, say, of, of Ferdinand and Amelda Marcos uh, to understand what it, how one might chase at, uh, at this practice of enriching oneself at the expense of the common good. It's a widely practiced political art, and Dante is disgusted by it, not because it's, it's uh, of its, its heinous in and of itself, but because it destroys the community, the communitas. Well, uh, 
Dante says something I think is of interest uh, early on in Canto 21. He uses this elaborate analogy or simile. He says, as in the arsenal of the Venetians, all winter long, a stew of sticky pitch boils up to patch their sick and tattered ships that cannot sail. Instead of voyaging, some build new keels, some tow and tar the ribs of hulls worn out by too much journeying, some hammer at the prow, some at the stern, and some make oars and some braid ropes and cords. One mends the jib, another the mainsail. And the reason he introduces that because he wants to talk about pitch, that black gooey stuff in which these sinners are immersed. So he, want to bring, he wants to bring that image uh, into the poem. But it seems to me he's describing a season when the journey is interrupted, the ships are brought up on dry dock, and the pitch has gotten out, and they start slapping it back and forth, uh, making the ship ready for search future voyaging. And I think it's entirely possible that Dante uses that because that's exactly what he's doing with his poem here. He brings the poem up out of the water and puts it in dry dock and takes this pitch out and just has fun for two cantos, slapping it around. Uh, and then he'll get back. And I think the key to it is, is, the, is the tone. You get the sense that Dante has unloaded the moral ballast in these two cantos. The ship is, is simply not carrying the weight. The, the poetic ship is not carrying the kind of moral weight in these two cantos. I'm not going to go into a detailed analysis of the poem because we just don't have time, but uh, just to make a couple of notes about its, its uh, grossness and uh, vulgarity and, and uh, feistiness, well, the first canto, first of all, Dante meets, you can't tell the demons from the damned, the tor tormentors from the tormented. They look similarly, except for the tormentors have uh, bat-like wings. I'm told this is the most memorized line in all of uh, the Inferno by Italian schoolboys, and that's the last line of Canto 21. And this is the leader of these demons, who needs to summon them, the demons. Uh, a lot of the demons in hell uh, have, uh, have a kind of uh, military uh, quality to them, and this is the military leader of the demons in this part of hell, and he summons them by making a trumpet out of his ass. Um, and I'm told that Italian schoolboys who have Dante foisted on them early on uh, uh, recite this particular line in the schoolyard uh, regularly. There's a, a grotesque scene in Canto 22, which I'm going to describe in a second, but I want to point out, first of all, that Dante says, he stops and talks to the reader, and he says, O oh, you who read, hear now of this new sport. He calls it a new sport, and then he describes this scene. I just want to mention, I think this calling it a new sport is his analysis of this sin and the reason why he can't take it seriously. Uh, it seems to me he has seen in graft the, the gaminess of it, which is, how much can I get away with? 
how much can I get away with? These demons who are in the pitch try to get up out of it to get a little cooler or to get a breath of air or something. And those are the, the sinners, I'm sorry. And the demons along the side, when they, when they see the sinner coming up, they hook them with these great hooks and then start slay, slaying them alive. Uh, and so the game that goes on between the tormentors and the tormented is how much can they get away with? And, how mu- and when are we... So there's a game quality to the whole scene. And one sin- sinner who's brought in and held up on, a, on the hook by one of these demons, they cease their tormenting long enough for Dante and Virgil to interrogate the sinner. And then the sinner comes up with this great ruse. He says to, his, to the demons, uh, breaking all, also a violation of a, any sense of community, you see. It's just dog-eat-dog, everybody for himself. He says, look, to his tormentors, look, there's just one of me. If you back off, I can whistle, and I'll get six or seven of these sinners to come up. That's our signal. We whistle when you demons aren't around. And if I whistle, six or seven of these guys will come up, and you'll have six or seven instead of just me but you have to back off and kind of get over there behind a the rock. And these sinners are real sort of dumb types, and they look at each I mean, the, the, the demons, they look at each other and they say, I don't think we can trust this guy. We, anyway, finally they move off behind the rock. As soon as, they're, as soon as they're over there, the sinner just dives into the perch, and that's it. And they've been had. And they, and they, so there's this gaminess, I think, which is Dante's sense of the sin. It's just, See how much you can get away with. A few dollars here, a few dollars, maybe a big deal. So, you know, the motivation behind this graph might be not so much greed, but a kind of funny gaminess that it's possible to pocket some of this and nobody's going to notice. And then the question is, how much can you pocket before they notice? Anyway, what happens when the sinner dies in the pictures? The demons come out with their great... Uh, hooks, you know, and they also have wings. So they fly out over the pitch and they reach down in there and try to get him. And they bump into each other. And they get start fighting with each other. And they fall into the pitch themselves. And the whole thing becomes this absolute farce. I wanted to show you what uh, Tom Phillips has done with Blake's rendition of this. Here, uh, again, I apologize for people listening on tape, but Here's Blake's version. You see these two um, demons here with the wind, and they're out there trying to get the center who's already in the pitch. Uh, and what uh, Tom Phillips did with that is he incorporated it, and I think this is capturing uh, Dante quite well. He incorporated the Blake image. If you can, I don't know if you can see, see this right here. He incorporated it with a kind of uh, Superman cartoon quality. And that's just that's exactly the literary tone of this canto. It's a comic book canto. And so I think Phillips did a fabulous job of taking Blake and making it into the funny business. And it says here, then, dot, 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 just like it does in comic books. <laughs> 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 kind of neat. Well, what happens is uh, 
in Canto uh, 22, at the end of Canto 22 is when all this is happening. And the last line is, we left them still contending in that mess. Just a chaos. And suddenly, Dante and Virgil slip out, an enormous change of tone happens in the first line of Canto 23. Silent, alone, no one escorting us. We made our way, one went before, one after, as far as minor, when they walked together. So, very deftly now, Dante is going to reload the moral ballast and get the thing underway again. You see? Sudden change of tone. And now he says, Below that point we found a painted people. It's a great line. These are the hypocrites. Below that point we found a painted people who moved about with lagging steps in circles, weeping with features tired and defeated. They were dressed in cloaks with towels so low they fell before their eyes of that same cut that's used to make the clothes for Cluny's monks. Again, there's a religious dimension to this scene. Outside, these cloaks were gilded and they dazzled. But inside, they were all of lead. A number of things have to be said here. One is, again, Dante locates the punishment is always the continuation of the sin, the eternalization of the sin. And what Dante sees about this sin, that is its punishment, is that it is exhausting. Hypocrisy is exhausting. And that is its punishment. He says, a tiring mantle for eternity. To keep up the pretense forever. Oh. All the energy is being expended in maintaining the appearances. Now, the, the word hypocrites has, has for Dante, well, it has, if we take in Dante, two origins. One means, the Greek word means a mask worn on stage and the mask was not was not only the mask of the character, but it was shaped so that it so that the voice was uh, distorted and amplified somewhat. So to speak through the mask, to be a hypocrite in that sense, is to wear a mask that contorts the response and uh, is false not only in the sense of a false face, but it it uh, distorts the verbal response as well. So it fits in many ways. Dante's take on hypocrite came from the, the way in which it was dealt with in the, the Latin lectionary, uh, the Latin lexicon. And it was thought to be uh, a synonym for gilded. And that's where his image comes from. So what, what we have here are golden gilded robes of lead. And the great line in this, I think one of the great lines in the, in the uh, Inferno, uh, and I, I prefer, I think, Chardy's translation of the line. Chardy says, What punishment is this that glitters so? 
what pun and uh, Mandelbaum says what punishment it is that glitters so. What punishment is this that glitters so? When Mother Teresa came of Calcutta came to New York, she said she felt compassion for the wealthy people in New York City. For the wealthy people. What punishment is this that glitters so? Well, it's interesting because alchemically, you see the alchemical, uh, under one of the formulas, alchemical formulas, which are really uh, symbols for the transformation of, of, uh, of the psyche, of the soul, the alchemical formula is one transmutes lead into gold. Lead is the basis of the metals, and gold is the, uh, is the most precious. So the alchemical formula is to translate, transmute lead into gold. And so here you have an interesting image. The, gold, the robes are gilded golden, but they are in fact still lead. They have decided to skip the bother with the transmutation process and simply gild them gold, pave it and paint it green kind of approach to reality. The sinners we visit here are all religious people. Uh, Catalano and Lodoringo are two uh, jolly friars who were, and they were the kind of papal peacekeeping force, uh, who went to Florence to try to maintain order and uh, secretly were conspiring with Rome to, uh, or with the uh, papacy, to uh, uh, favor one side against the other, and so there was a lot of bloodshed. So they were hip hypocrites in that they pretended to be about peaceful things, but in fact they had another agenda. And then he sees Caiaphas, the great, according to Dante, great hypocrite. Again, he's the chief priest, so he's a representative of the religious establishment. And Caiaphas would correspond to Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor. Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor is simply the modern version of Caiaphas. Someone who says, it would be nice, but we can't afford a Christ right now, please. We have to keep, we have to, uh, keep our social order intact, and uh, we don't want something like someone like a Christ around to, uh, to stir the matter up. We're doing quite well if we just, and so on and so forth. Well, that is the great uh, hypocrisy, to put maintenance of the social or cultural order ahead of the incarnation. And often the maintenance of the so social and cultural order seem threatened by the incarnation. And if one has become a, uh, uh, a uh, preserver of culture, watch out. Because the Incarnation will threaten that project as it threatens the rest of them. You know, this hypocrisy thing, uh, it, there might be more to it than what we think of at first. So I want to share with you some, some things that Toynbee writes about. 
he says, the problem of bringing the uncreative rank and file, this is Turnby, by the way, was no egalitarian either. The problem with bringing the uncreative rank and file into line with the creative pioneers cannot be solved in practice on the social scale without bringing into play the faculty of sheer mimesis, uh, mimicry. One of the less exalted faculties of human nature. The direct kindling of creative energy from soul to soul is no, no doubt the ideal way, but to rely upon it exclusively is a counsel of perfection. I'll just read this so you get a sense of what he's trying to say. In static primitive societies, mimesis, that is to say copying, uh, mimicking, in static primitive societies, mimesis is directed towards the older generation of the living members and towards the dead in whom the cake of custom is incarnate. Whereas societies in process of civilization, the same faculty is directed towards the creative personalities who have broken new ground. The saints, in other words. This is to fall, follow in the footsteps of St. Francis, to do what Francis did. You see, that kind of idea. Or to do what Gandhi did. Can this revised version of a primitive social drill really serve as an effective substitute for, quote, the strenuous intellectual communion and intimate personal intercourse, end quote, quote which Plato affirmed to be the only means of transmitting a philosophy from one individual to another? It can, only be it can only be replied that the inertia of mankind in the mass has never, in fact, been overcome by the exclusive use of the Platonic method. This is Mimesis can lead to the acquisition of social assets, aptitudes or emotions or ideas, which the acquisitors had not originated and which they would never have possessed if they had not encountered and imitated those who possessed them. It is, in fact, a shortcut. Though it may be an inevitable path towards a necessary goal, it is also a duedient, which no less inevitably exposes a growing civilization to peril of breakdown. It's an interesting discussion because he says it is important for us in our lives to mimic those that go before us, who have, who are, what he's talking about, ethical or creative pioneers. We need to mimic them. Uh, you know that thing about, uh, I always quote about Hannah Arendt saying, you can't, the truth cannot be the subject of persuasion, but you can persuade people of almost anything else, and if you persuade them of the existence of heaven and hell, you can get them to behave as though they knew the truth. Um, there is, for all of us, a period of time in which it's important to mimic those that we cannot, we cannot live up to in any other way. And I think the distinction is so that it's a much more complicated thing. This hypocrisy is a much more complicated thing. Uh, it's appropriate to mimic up to a point 
Notice they're well wearing gilded robes, and notice that Dante threw away his cord. There may be psychologically some connection. The moment when it is no longer appropriate to continue to mimic, and now what one must do is to begin the transmutation process on one's own. So again, it might not be so much a, a thing about a thing of uh, pretense versus honesty. It might be more complicated than that. I think of Howard Thurman, who told his first this ragtag uh, group of people who wanted to start the Fellowship Church in <laughs> San Francisco when, when he came out from, from Boston. He said, trust it with my trust until you can trust it with your own. So the hypocrites might be people who have, who have prolonged into a later stage of their lives the mimicking of, of uh, that transformation instead of undertaking the work of transformation itself. It is a complicated thing, but I, I think of this... Uh, thing of Sebastian Moores, who, who defines sin as uh, seeing my life through others' eyes. That might, be a, that might be a helpful critique of where one is slipping into that sin. Am I seeing my life through the eyes of others? One of the things I'm struck by in Dante's image, I think you could read this much into it, that maybe the original impulse to the hypocrisy is that it's a shortcut, that it's a lot easier to pretend uh, that the transformation has occurred than it is to submit to it. But Dante's image is that the irony is that finally it's much more exhausting to pretend than it is to submit to it. Well, in Canto 24, Dante makes a transition from the circle where the hypocrites are being punished to the one where the thieves are being punished. Uh, and it is also an emotional transition for him in that he is exhausted. Now, you remember that the hypocrites uh, were exhausted, the implication being that hypocrisy is an exhausting thing to, to, uh, to do. Uh, but then Dante has, uh, has to climb, Dante and Virgil have to climb up out of this uh, pit into the next one. And he makes the point, it was no path for those with cloaks of lead. In other words, this, the journey they then had to take was no journey for a hypocrite. Uh, because the exhaustion of the hypocrites would never have allowed him to complete the journey. And right after that, Dante says he's exhausted. Uh, so there is, in, in these three cantos we're going to look at, something of, a, of an ongoing uh, examination of conscience on Dante's part, which, of course, is the reason for the visit to hell in the first place, in some respects. But it's interesting the language that is used uh, and, and uh, how it's responded to. Dante says, 
the breath within my lungs was so exhausted from climbing I could not go on. In fact, as soon as I had reached that stone, I sat. Now, there's going to be, in that statement and in, in Virgil's response, there is a lot of attention to breath and even, the, even the, in English, the exhaustion uh, connotes being uh, having exhausted, uh, exhaled, being out of breath. Dante says he was out of breath. And the remedy for that kind of exhaustion, which is not physical exhaustion, if you think of the word for breath, the Greek word pneuma means spirit. So he is out of spirits. And so the remedy for that is to be inspired. And Virgil responds, so Virgil responds to his exhaustion by saying, now you must cast aside your laziness, my master said, for he who rests on down or under covers cannot come to fame. And he who spends his life without renown leaves such a vestige of himself on earth as smoke bequeaths to air or foam to water. Therefore get up, defeat your breathlessness with spirit that can win all battles if the body's heaviness does not deter it. A longer ladder still is to be climbed. It's not enough to have left them behind if you have understood now profit from it. And Dante jumps up and begins the journey again. A number of things I'd like to say about this. First of all, uh, Virgil says to Dante, if you rest on your laurels, so to speak, you will not achieve fame. Now, if you'll remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about uh, immortality projects. And, uh, and how um, suspect they ought to be. Uh, and now here Virgil is talking about the need to achieve fame. Uh, two things have to be said, I think. First of all, this is Virgil talking not to Dante at the height of Paradiso, but Dante uh, toward the end of the Inferno. And that is to say a Dante who uh, has much yet to learn. Uh, but I think more importantly than that is the connotation of the word fama in, it, in Italian, uh, a connotation that it takes obviously from its more ancient sources in the Latin. And it is something far broader and deeper than what we usually think of by the word fame. Fama uh, has a significance to it that for us fame often does not have. Uh, I, I like, I'm sure I've mentioned this a dozen times, but I like that thing of uh, uh, that defines uh, a celebrity as somebody who's famous for being well known. There's no, in our sense of fame, there's no nothing to it except that one is famous. That's all. And uh, how one got that way is is uh, does not play a part in the in the in the definition of the term. Not so with fama, much more a sense of significance. But I think the key to it, perhaps for us, is when Virgil says, uh, speaks of leaving a vestige of himself on earth, that without fama, we do not leave a vestige of ourselves on earth. And it's important, apparently, according to Virgil's speech here, to leave a vestige of ourselves on earth. Uh, now, 
that vestige does not have to take this, that, or the other form. But where where does that impulse come from? We might think about that and think of of um, the inherent instinct, so to speak, to leave evidence. Not so much evidence of the life, uh, but evidence of something that has touched the life. And that's a, perhaps a subtle distinction, but 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 maybe an important one. Um, we will want later, perhaps, to compare the speech of Virgil in Canto 24 to Dante, who's exhausted, and the speech of Ulysses to his men in Canto 26. Uh, in both cases, the the uh, guide is rallying his uh, exhausted comrades or comrades. Uh, but there's, uh, if you want to think about homework, next week's homework is to write a 500-page paper on what the difference between these two speeches is. Virgil is going to lead Dante uh, through Purgatorio and then turn him over to, para to paradise, and uh, Ulysses is going to spend the rest of eternity in hell. And both of them are giving speeches that are quite similar in some respects. And so we want to find out what the difference is. But anyway, to go back to this uh, exhortation to renown, the heart of it, I think, is to leave evidence behind. And maybe the impulse to leave evidence behind is an incarnational impulse. Uh, that the meeting, the important meeting that takes place, uh, needs some, some um, vestigial remains from that meeting, need to be left for others to, uh, to give others a sense that it is there. It can uh, happen. I would like to uh, uh, engage in the presumption of reading one of my poems to you, if I may, just uh, for a lot of reasons, all of which I will not share it with you right now. But uh, this poem is a couple of, a couple of three years old. It's called Codicil, and it, and it was at a time when I was, uh, I was puzzling over what it means to be a father and what it means to leave evidence and so on and so forth. Codicil is a, is a little amendment you make to your will. And this I wrote for my uh, three children. And it's a little indulgence to read it, but I think it has something to do with this leaving evidence. Um, so if it's okay, I'd like to read it to you. What works on me is a whittler's knife. The whittling starts on the courthouse porch where the whittler comes to begin each day talking with old friends he's spent a life talking with of politics, weather, sports. The pattern seems a random one of notches, nicks, and thoughts, but the whittling stick grows smaller anyway. All the fat options are gone. He may yet decide to make something of it, a knick-knack, a child's toy, a memento of sorts, or he may abruptly turn to his distracted friends and come at once to the point of what he spent a lifetime trying to say and toss the little stick away for emphasis. If so, perhaps there is, depending on what the whittler turns to say, and without knowing what the whittler might have wrought, a blessing on his children's sort of grace for one who left another little piece of crude and circumstantial evidence, not for the cockeyed notions in his own head, but of what the whittler sought and what he said when after all the talk and shavings on the floor, the few words came he'd been waiting for.
But the mystery lives because the mystery is that I will have missed the very last word he spoke with all the emphasis. Perhaps if you're nearby, you will have heard it or later left to reminisce with loving eyes turned briefly down. You might see a cast-off stick on the ground and find in its unfinishedness a hint of why a flawed and simple man, grateful to have turned in the whittler's hand, would write a will like this. You know, after you write poems and they've been sitting around for two or three years, they don't even seem like your own anymore. They just seem like poems that you remember real well. Um, but I share that because it seems to me it comes out of uh, uh, tinged, however it may be, with my own uh, egoism or immortality project or whatever other funny business may be going on in my head. It seems to me it comes out of a of a legitimate need to leave evidence behind of a meeting uh, for others. And so when Virgil ex exhorts Dante to effort so that he will achieve fame, I think it has that quality to it. In any case, Virgil, uh, Dante is rallied, and he moves on into the uh, area where the thieves are being punished. Before we get into this, this is one of the most, uh, this is Dante, the poetic virtuoso in Cantos 24 and 25. As a matter of fact, he is so facile poetically in these two chapters, it scares him. And uh, he has to give himself a little talking to in Canto 26 because he says, um, you know, you might just spend the rest of your life showing off. You can write so well. Uh, so uh, there's a lot to experience in these cantos, but before we get into it, these are the thieves. And the very strange thing about these thieves is that, the, is that they're, is that, well, we'll see about them. Uh, we need to define thieves or theft, I think, at a deeper level in order to appreciate how Dante, how, how aptly Dante has chosen his punishment. As you know, always the punishment is, is something like the eternalization of the sin itself. Uh, you finally get what you want. Um, and, and if what you've wanted is something other than what you really are, then you have to spend hell with it. Um, so let's try to get a sense of what if, if, if thieving is just taking something you didn't pay for, um, it, it doesn't exactly sound deep and ominous moral or ontological notes for us. But we, So let's try to redefine thieving at a deeper level. And where I would begin to do that is to harken back to this thing of, um, of Aristotle's, which he called the entelechy. Each sentient being has in him, in her, a intelechistic impulse. And it is the impulse that's in the acorn that would become an oak tree. And this intelechistic impulse knows uh, in some inherent way its, its, its proper growth pattern. And it wants to develop that way. And it ha you might say there is in the intelechistic impulse an inner urge to continual transformations. 
and the and the proper uh, development of that process is the is the entelechy. And these are along peculiar lines to e for each of us. When we become reflective creatures like human beings are, each of us has a unique entelechy. In less reflective beings, the, the entelechistic thing might be more, more species-wide uh, or generic. But it, for us, it takes on, it, it very much is shared, but it also takes on nuances that are unique to us. We could say that if the inner urge is denied, and I like this word, it surfaces. The inner urge to transformation, if it is denied and repressed, it surfaces and becomes polyvalent and random. Uh, Santayana defined, uh, George Santayana, the philosopher, defined a fanatic as someone who, having lost sight of the ends, multiplies the means and just starts groping wildly around, going from this to that, but no sense of something developing properly along its proper channel, no sense of the Tao, no sense of something. It's just random, here, there, everywhere. I was playing around, uh, you know, I like etymology, as you know, and I was playing around with an etymology all my own. I, I, make, up, I make up a lot of things, theories and stories, and, uh, so I made up, an, I took a bike ride this morning, I made up an etymology on my bike ride, and I thought to myself, now, you know, if you were really, uh, you, if you really were doing things right, you would go over to your office and uh, look, at, look up the real etymology. Uh, but I didn't bother, because uh, <laughs> this is the, I mean, it's not even, it's just slightly etymological, but I, I wanted to play around with this um, to get, get a sense of what thieving is at the ontological level. So it came to me on my bike ride that that which is the genuine goal of my being ought to be the legitimate object of my longing. The thief is someone who perverts the longing to be into the taking of what does not belong to me. So the word I'm working with is belonging. What belongs to me is that which is the genuine goal of my being and ought to be the legitimate object of my longing. That's what belongs to me. And nothing else belongs to me. I may pay for it have the receipt in hand, you see. But if it does not belong to me in that fundamental sense, it's thievery. So we're not talking about whether or not it was properly paid for. Uh, we're not even talking about something, we're not even talking about some, something that is necessarily objective. Uh, it could be the latest fad. It could be a, uh, a, a uh, intellectual trend. Uh, it it could be anything. That which is the genuine goal of my being ought to be the legitimate object of my longing. And that is what belongs to me. And theft is to take what does not belong to me as my own. 
So it doesn't have to do with whether or not it was properly paid for. I mean, most anybody, if they work hard enough, scare up enough money to pay for it. So that's not really the issue. Well, with that in mind, think of the thieves as those who have made a mockery of transformation. And so as their punishment, they become the senseless victims of mock transformation. And that's the picture that Dante shows uh, us of these thieves. And the first one we see is, we find out later, Vani Fucci. Uh, but when Dante sees him, he says this, Ah, there, a serpent sprang with force at one who stood upon our shore, transfixing him just where the neck and shoulders form a knot. No O or I has ever been transcribed so quickly as that soul caught fire and burned. Let me pause there and indicate Dante is making a parallel there between writing and transformation, or this kind of mock transformation. That is a leitmotif, so to speak, that runs through these cantos. As I said, Dante is engaging in the, in the examination of conscience. He's going to, in a few pages, pride himself on being able to pull off these poetic uh, transformations with great facility. Uh, but already there's a hint that, in part, he's looking at his own, his own ability to create these images of transformation. No ORI was ever, has ever been transcribed so quickly as that so-called fire and burned, and as he fell, completely turned to ashes. And when he lay undone upon the ground, the dust of him collected by itself and instantly returned to what it was. Now that, of course, is the somber result of it. Returned to what it was. So it is a mock transformation. And Dante uses the analogy or the simile of the, of the uh, phoenix. Just so it is asserted by great sages that when it reaches its 500th year, the phoenix dies and then is born again. Born again. This is uh, the Italian word, and, and for us, this is a religious term, and Dante is using it quite clearly with that religious spin on it. This is a... This is a perversion of the resurrection uh, mystery. Lifelong it never feeds on grass or grain, but only drops of incense and ammonium. Its final winding sheets are nard and myrrh. Now he got this from Ovid, and he's a great fan of Ovid's Metamorphoses. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, there's a passage about a twenty-line passage about the uh, phoenix. The first two lines are these. A serious bird, the phoenix, this alone, it, it, Ovid is saying all the rest of these transformations involve uh, encounters with an other, an other, uh, the, the offspring of creatures comes from sexual embrace. See? A serious bird, the phoenix, this alone, is self-renewed, self-fathered, and self-sown. And that, too, may go to the perversion of the transformation. 
Remember, Buber is the one who said, we talked about last week, the uh, magic is the attempt to have a religious life without entering into a relationship. Uh, you could say the perversion of the phoenix is the attempt to have a resurrection experience without having an encounter. Self-renewed, self-fathered, and self-sown. The problem is that he, he returns to what he was. There is a mock renewal, but it is, it is uh, not new. We might make a connection here, if we're thinking of a thief as some, I'll just rehearse this again, the, the genuine object of my, the genuine goal of my being ought to be the legitimate object of my longing, so anything along that line would belong to me, anything else would not belong to me. Uh, if I am engaged in, if I am uh, caught up in that which does not belong to me, I may more quickly experience something called burnout. There may be a phoenix connection to this burnout. The other thing about thieving is that it is a violation of the legitimate boundaries between me and thee. And uh, I think that's p part of what Dante is, is working on here. Uh, let's go on. He interrupts what he's talking about. He says this creature just becomes, returns from the ashes to what he was before, and then he provides that little simile, and then he says, and just as he who falls and knows not how by demon's force that drags him to the ground or by some other hindrance that binds man, who when he rises stares about him, all bewildered by the heavy anguish he has suffered, sighing, he looks around. So did this sinner stare when he arose. Now this is, the imagery here is like someone who has just fallen into an epileptic fit and awakens and kind of is in a daze and looks around, stunned by it. But the image I think Dante is showing here is that this is a, that this is a creature who is going through the pain and confusion of a transformation and no transformation is resulting from it and no consciousness is resulting from it. So that the so that the sinner is unaware of an inner impulse that has become a compulsion. He doesn't realize it's a compulsion until after the fact. Until he wakes up the next morning and looks back on last night and realizes what a tremendous doesn't realize could realize. Somebody looking on can realize what a tremendous compulsion he was under. Compulsion stems, it, the compulsion is a perversion of that longing for transformation. But what it produced was a theft. To be forced out of myself and at the same time to refuse to go to the meeting place is to be lost. I'm neither here nor there. And the need for transformation is such that, that, that one is forced out of the untransformed ego. But the refusal to go to a meeting place, to 
to in, have an encounter that will be transformative, then one is the world just becomes a a a uh, something to be used, something to be. So one tries to draw energy off of everything around to try to restore some sense of uh, of self. And what you have here, I think, is a is a is a very a very horroring sense of the loss of self. When he arises, stares about him, all bewildered by the heavy anguish he has suffered, sighing as he looks around. The loss of self, I think, is what's what's going on here. Anyway, uh, there is... Uh, so we, we're, we're told about this sinner. This is uh, Vani Fucci, who has committed just about all the sins... Uh, at least in the generic sense, uh, in hell. But he's here because he's a thief. He robbed the sacristy, and that's another hint that when Dante picks the thief, he picks one that has robbed the, uh, in some way, the inner sanctum of the holy place. So we're not talking about some thievery in uh, uh, at the marketplace, but some more profound uh, theft uh, Canto 25 starts out with uh, Vani Fucci uh, showing the figs, which is a which is a uh, middle medieval version of uh, of the, what we call the bird. <laughs> For those of you familiar with the uh, of these things, anyway, he gives God the bird. Is what happened with both hands, um, and then. And then he runs off, and the centaur comes chasing after him. Where is he? Where is that bitter one? And the centaur has snakes on his rump and a, and a, and a dragon on his shoulders, fire-breathing dragon. And when he, when he catches a sinner, he, uh, the, flame, the dragon's flames uh, blaze up onto the sinner. What's interesting here is that this centaur is Cacus, and Cacus was a thief himself. He stole uh, Hercules' cattle. And it's another hint of what's happening uh, beginning in these cantos, namely that the sinners and the tormentors are now indistinguishable. Uh, Cacus is both a tormentor and a sinner. And uh, they were almost indistinguishable uh, before when we had those demons flying out over the pitch. Uh, but now they have become indistinguishable. They are their own tormentors in a way. There still are tormentors and, and sinners, but they uh, intermingle wildly, and that's what we're about to see is the intermingling of them. There are two stories in Canto 25, um, two of these stunning transformation, or mock transformation, that Dante calls our attention to. And I'll just read them through and uh, sort of marvel, even in the in the translation of it, uh, uh, what Dante has depicted here. Uh, we might see these sinners as again, just to go over the old, what we've already talked about. We might see these sinners as souls that have responded to the need for transformation uh, by simply making changes. And that, of course, is 
something at the popular level uh, which is always very appealing. The need for a fundamental transformation is responded to by making changes at the surface of things. And you can change those things over and over and over again. And it's no fundamental transformation. Change jobs, change hometowns, change spouses, change, you know, the whole deal, fashion, whatever. But the main thing is that deeper transformation. And if you, I would say what's implicit here is if one engages in the if one responds to the urge for transformation by merely making changes, what happens is a loss of self. 